So if you've been with us, we've been going through a series on forgiveness um, over these last few weeks and talking about how important and core forgiveness is to our walk with Christ. That we never move past forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't an entry point to the Christian life. Like it's a rhythm we live into all the time. We live in a state of forgiveness. And today we're going to come to a passage that I think is challenging for us today. It's a challenge to the church and it's a challenge to our culture. And yet it's a verse that people grab onto, whether you're a Christian or not. If someone asked you, like if you asked a random person on the street, what does Jesus teach? They might quote this verse because it's about not judging, right? Do not judge or you too will be judged is what it says in Matthew 7, 1. I think this might be one of the most quoted and least understood verses of, of Scripture, and I think it's important that we look at it today because it has huge implications for how we interact with each other and how we interact with the world. It's important that we understand what Jesus is saying. Do not judge. So, what does that mean? What does that mean? I think there's a lot of confusion. Does that mean that we're supposed to ignore others' faults and sins? Does that mean if I see my brother or sister struggling, I'm supposed to turn and look the other way? Is it saying I don't have a right to correct anybody else? We need to know what Jesus is asking us to do because it affects all of our relationships. And so what I want to do is, before we get into the heavier part of this, I just want to start with... Uh, uh, this question, what harm can be done when we judge others? I, I saw a video this week um, that was crazy, and maybe you saw it too. There was a golden corral in Pennsylvania where a fight broke out between 40 people. Anybody else see this this week? That was, oh, yeah. Hey, you stole the, okay, that's where I was going. Man. No, it, it, there was literally a fight that broke out, and you had 40 people, half on one side, half on the other side. One half was throwing high chairs, tables, dishes, glasses. It was insane. And like Tannis revealed, <laughs> it happened over an argument about steak. According to one of the guys involved in the fight, Alexis Rio, he said that he went and ordered, no, that another guy before him ordered a steak well done. And then he came behind him and he, he ordered a steak rare. Now, come on, if you cook a steak rare, it's going to be done way sooner than a steak well done, right? 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 Okay, but, so when Alexis gets his steak, this makes the other guy super mad. Not thinking, right? Not thinking. So he cocks his fist back, ready to punch him. Alexis grabs a high chair and puts it up to defend himself, and all chaos breaks loose in a golden corral in Pennsylvania. But if you watch this video, it's insane. You have these grown men, like, fighting like children, and in the middle, there's these probably teenage servers who are trying to hold them all back from each other. And, and, and high chairs are flying over heads, and it was crazy, all because somebody rushed to judgment, right? All because somebody misjudged, right? It's all because uh, somebody had a knee-jerk reaction. I wonder whoever started that fight, I wonder what they're thinking right now. I wonder what they're thinking, like, man, 
why did I react that way? You know, why was I so angry? I hope he's thinking this. He might not be thinking this, but I hope he is. Why didn't I just slow down and think for a minute about the cook time on steaks? Why did I rush to judgment? You know, and obviously this sermon is about not judging, so we're not here to judge that one guy. <laughs> Let's look inward. Let's look inward. Sometimes we spend, too, you know, sometimes I spend too much time speculating about what other people are thinking or doing, and I don't spend time slowing down, listening. I'm reactive. You ever get like that? You ever just react, assume that you know? Sometimes instead of talking to people, I can build up stories in my head about what's really going on instead of actually listening, slowing down, talking to someone else. We live in the social media age. If you want to talk about judgment, look no further than Twitter and Facebook, right? It's all judgment without knowing. You can judge someone and not even know them. You can build an army against somebody you've never met before. All on social media, right? Social media is created like an age of arrogance where other people think they know best, right? And I'm not talking about one side of the political aisle or one side of anything. It's all sides. It's all sides. But basically, social media is people making judgment without having all the facts, and making these slamming statements without really having to look somebody else in the eye. Instead, you just broadcast it for everybody to see, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, whatever, all those sites, it kind of breeds a judgmental culture. And uh, child psychologists are really concerned about the impact of social media on our kids. I don't know if you follow this at all, but they're really concerned because what social media is teaching our kids is how to not have empathy, right? How to slam somebody else without having to look them in the eyes. They don't have to see the impact of how their words hurt other kids, right? And so judgment is everywhere today. We live in a, we live in a culture saturated with judgment, whether that's in the church, in the world, everywhere. It's everywhere everybody, um, we all have this kind of judgment on our minds. So to that, let's go to Matthew 7 and read what Jesus says about judgment. He says this, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So there's the context for this verse. Do not judge. Talking about arrogance right? We would have a spirit of arrogance. Jesus tells his disciples not to judge because whatever bar we set, the same bar will be used against us. So, with the measure you tweet against others, it will be also tweeted against you. <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> 
So let's talk about this word judgment. What does this word judgment mean? It's this Greek word, krino, and it means to pass judgment, to condemn. At its core, it means to label something as different, okay? Label something as different, to condemn, to put aside. So when Jesus talks about judgment, he's referring to when we, as humans, put a permanent label on someone else, all right? It's like a permanent label, a stamp, and we use that to judge other people. Instead of looking at the person, we look at whatever we're judging them by, that label, right? That could be a label saying, you're condemned, you're helpless, you're an idiot, you're stupid, you're just a bad person. Whatever label we use, that's judgment right there. And we say those words, most of the time today, we're saying those words behind people's backs or online, or all sorts of places. And Jesus warns us to watch out because he's going to judge us with that same measure. However we label other people, we also have to face that label. Now, if I call somebody else stupid, have I ever done anything stupid? Have you ever done anything stupid? Yeah? Um, If you looked at my car buying history, you would say I'm a complete (laughs) moron. All right, that is one area I really struggle. I I need help because I am stupid when it comes to buying cars. We've bought a lot of cars that we thought were deals that didn't turn out to be deals. Anybody else have this experience or is it just me? Man, I feel like a moron whenever I have to buy a car. Um, But Jesus is saying, I can't call anybody else stupid because I've also been stupid. I'm not stupid all the time, but I'm definitely stupid sometimes. The good news is that God's grace has covered up my stupidity, right? <laughs> I've made stupid mistakes. God's grace is there. He covers up that stupidity. Hopefully, as I grow, I get less and less stupid, right? Hopefully, I can be less and less stupid. And our hope today, all of our hope today, is that God's grace is greater than all of our shortcomings. God's patience is greater than all of our shortcomings, all of our failures, all of them. He makes up for all the, the, the bad, stupid, rebellious things that we do. He makes up for it all. That's grace. And so if we turn around having received this grace and we go to someone else and call them stupid or them bad or, or worse language, then we're not living in the grace that God's given us. We're not living in the grace that we've received. We don't have grounds for condemnation. Now, I thought a lot about this this week, and I was thinking about, okay, there's a lot of labels out there, and God really put on my heart to talk about one specific one, and I'll tell you, I was like, I don't know, I don't know if I want to go there, because it feels like walking into a minefield, but there's one label that's, that, that sometimes we throw out, in, in, and, uh, and we struggle to address, and today in our culture, the label LGBT is a tough one, isn't it, for Christians? I've talked to a lot of Christians who struggle to address LGBT friends, neighbors, family, everybody. And it's a touchy subject. It's a really touchy subject because it deals with identity. And I I can tell you as a pastor, I've read books to try to understand how to navigate this tension more. And uh, I think it's... it's, uh, it's a, it's a tough one, but I'll just say, 
You know, we're a church, if we're a church that believes that the Bible is God's word, then we believe in biblical sexuality. And the boundaries for biblical sexuality is in a marriage only, in a relationship between a man and a woman, and I believe that's a clear teaching of Scripture. At the same time, all of us have failed to live within these boundaries. All of us. Jesus says if we've looked at somebody with lustful intent, we're guilty of adultery. All right? All of us have failed to live within these boundaries. So, has the church engaged the LGBT community with the same grace that they would engage anyone else? Or has there been a special focus? Because I think today the reality is many Christians can't see past that label. They can't see past the word gay or lesbian and look at the person. Look to the person. And because of that, they close the door to relationship. And so if you're just stopping at the label, that's actually a way of condemning someone. If you're only able to see a label and not able to see someone as made in the image of God and just as important to God as you. So what Jesus calls us to is not stop at any label, but look at the person. We are all in the process of being redeemed. God loves all of us. He desires everyone to be reconciled to him. Each person is someone that Jesus died to save. He loves them that much. Jesus says this in John 3. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through it. Are we in the world to condemn it or to save it? We need to see everyone's value the way that God sees, sees them. Does that mean we never talk about a person's sexuality? No. No, we're supposed to teach. We're supposed to help people seek the will of God. And we're supposed to do that in a humble way where we're with people and not separating ourselves from others. We, we are supposed to call people to align themselves to the will of God, but it's always from a humble posture that knows we've received grace. The only, the only peace, the only authority, the only thing we stand on is the grace of Jesus. Because the focus of this passage of non-judgment, it isn't on another person. It's on you. It's on you. The focus of this passage is on you, Christian, to look at yourself in your own life first. To look at yourself, to figure yourself out first. Jesus said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Before you address anybody else's sexual sin, look inside. Take stock. Are you struggling with lust, pornography, what you watch on TV, what comes up on your phone, right? Is your thought life pure? Don't you still need redemption? Right? And I'm not trying to make this a one-topic issue today, but I think this is an important one to talk about. I think it makes it really real. Because God didn't put us here on the planet to pass judgment on anybody, but to love them and point them to Jesus. You're not here on the planet to say who's in and who's out. You're here on the planet to proclaim the good news. And Jesus wants that to start with our own hearts. Where have we strayed? And here's the point today. Because we are forgiven, 
we are forbidden from, from looking at anyone with a critical spirit. The key word is critical. If we're passing judgment, if we're labeling, that means we have a critical spirit. We're looking at someone critically. And does your criticism bring someone closer to God? Or does it push them away? Does it leave people out in the cold? Because one thing criticism does is it creates a distance. Right? It creates distance between you and those that you're criticizing. And the, the message of the gospel is that Jesus didn't distance himself from us. He dove right in. Jesus didn't put a permanent label on us and say we're irredeemable. No, instead he, he made us, changed us from being slaves to sin to sons and daughters of God. So Jesus put a new label on us. A new label. You are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. We used to be enemies, and now we're sons and daughters. We're even friends. And that label change doesn't happen without forgiveness. That's why we can't forget about forgiveness. We live in a state of forgiveness, and if we forget about that, we forget who we are. As Christians, we forget that we were made in the image of God. We forget where we would be without Jesus because we would be lost, afraid, and alone. And just a quick pause here. If you feel that this morning, if you feel like you're lost and afraid and alone, you need to know that your Father stands ready to welcome you home today, welcome you into his family. He wants you to come home. He's ready to meet you at the door to weep with you and restore you. God has no desire to condemn anyone. His desire is to restore you to be his son or daughter. He doesn't want to condemn. And here's the, here's the second point today. God doesn't look at any of us with a critical spirit, but a concerned one. There's a huge difference between being critical of someone and being concerned about someone, right? Right? There's a huge difference between being critical and concerned. A good father is concerned about his kids, not critical. God doesn't stand with his arms folded and with a scowl on his face when he looks at you. He's not stoic. He's not demissive. He doesn't laugh at us. Instead, he's incredibly concerned about the state of our hearts. And nowhere is, nowhere is that made more clear than when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Now think about this story between Jesus and the prodigal son. Jesus talks about this rebellious son who publicly shames his father, humiliates his father, takes half his wealth, squanders it, and then realizes, oh man, what, what was I doing? What was I doing? And he ends up hungry, alone, and afraid. The verse in Luke 15 says, he came to his senses, and he realized that his best play was to just go home and face his father. And the father had every right to be angry. He had every right to light up his son. Um, but he doesn't. Ironically, it's the brother who's been with the father who's the one who really wants to light up the son. Right? The, uh, the rebellious son. He's the one who's the most angry, not the father. And this is how the father responds to his returning son. He says this. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. So what do you notice about the father's heart for the son? It's filled with concern when the son shows up. He doesn't get a beat down or a talking to. It's a celebration because the father's been concerned about him. He hasn't been thinking in terms of my son's bad. He's been thinking my son's lost. My son's dead. He needs help. He needs, he needs to be found. He needs to be alive again. That's, that's a perspective of concern. That's a perspective of concern, wanting, uh, wanting a person to be restored. I remember a couple of years ago um, at my house, my youngest son, Eli, is a very good hider, as I've come to realize. He can hide really, really well. The first time I realized this was a, uh, I almost had a panic attack because Bonnie and I were, you know, basically, I think the other kids were somewhere else. We were just with Eli. We turn around, and he's missing. So we're calling around, Eli, Eli, nothing. Five minutes go by. Oh, Eli, Eli. You know, all these, all these thoughts of what if he ran outside and somebody picked him up, all these, like, doomsday scenarios. I start running down my street like a crazy person. Eli, Eli, yelling. My neighbors think I'm insane. But I'll tell you, as a father who didn't know where his son was, I was in a panic, right? I was extremely worried. There's no sitting down and watching TV when your kid's missing, right? right? There's, no, there's no dismissiveness. There's no flippant attitude. There's no, like, ah, whatever. He'll, he'll come back eventually. I'd do that to my dog. I wouldn't do that to my son. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I always, always rag on my dog. Pray for me, okay? I need help. I need help. <laughs> um, but what we found is that he had, he had shoved himself to the, the back corner of um, my daughter's, under my daughter's bed, and uh, he finally came out after about 10 minutes of panic. And my first, my first response was not to be angry at him. It was just complete relief, right? Oh, good. You know, I was, I had had these moments of absolute terror, what this was going to mean, um, you know, I, I, there was no rest in my mind, and when we found him, it was just a sense of relief and celebration, and that helps me make sense of God's attitude towards us, because I'm imperfect, I love imperfectly, obviously, if I was a perfect person, I'd love my dog more than I do, I'm working on that, pray for me, um, <laughs> But, um, but, but God is perfect, and God is a perfect father, and God is loving. So how much more does God care about us and the state we're in? Notice it's God who has every right to declare us good and bad, who instead views us as lost and found, or dead and alive, Right? So a critical spirit puts you in a place where you stand back with your arms folded, you have distance, and you can judge. Concern conveys that you actually love this person, and you want them to, uh, you care for every part of their being. 
You want them to find restoration spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. You care for all of it. Being concerned leads you to talk with someone. Being critical leads you to talk about someone. And I'm saying this as someone who's, who, who does this, right? I, I need grace in this, too. Because we live in a culture that's hypercritical, right? We've talked about this. There's so much public criticism that we absorb every day just in the, in the, in the media that we consume. And it's hard to consume that much criticism and not become a critic ourselves, right? Not have a critical heart ourselves. And that's why we need to seek the kingdom first and Jesus first. That's why we need to put down our phones and pick up our Bibles, right? And be filled with, 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 with the scripture and with the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to take a minute and, and pray for our hearts, knowing that this is something that, that I also struggle with. God, Holy Spirit, I, I pray for our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would lead us from uh, being critical to being concerned. Lord, that you would fill us with compassion, the, pa- the compassion of Jesus. Lord, Romans 5.5 5 says that you pour your love into our hearts. And so, Lord, I ask for that right now, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's go back to this passage in Matthew 7. Because what it's saying is that, hey, if you want to see the world change, it doesn't start here, it starts here. Okay? If you want to see the world change, it doesn't start here, it starts here. Jesus says, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So this is just a ridiculous image, right? Uh, imagining a two-by-four stuck in someone's eye socket, okay? Not something you see every day. Um, now, Jesus was a carpenter. He, when he grew up, he started his ministry at about age 30. Uh, Hebrew kids at that time, they learned a trade and were ready to be independent by age 12. So Jesus had been a carpenter for like 18 years, and so this image was probably, like, really connected with him at a core le- level. You're saying you have sawdust in one guy's eye while you're walking around with a two-by-four in your eye. If you went to the emergency room with a two-by-four in your eye, you probably wouldn't have to sit down and read one of those magazines for two hours. <laughs> I hope not. I don't know today, really. But, <laughs> but yeah, they would send you right back. They would send you right back, and you'd have uh, attention right away. And this is what I think the point of this is saying, is that Jesus wants us to live with an urgency to address our own sin before we address the sins of others. Right? The urgency needs to not be here. It needs to be here. Lord, make me right with you. Where are the areas where I'm falling short? Before we, before we correct others, because it's not saying don't correct others. It's not saying don't lead people towards God. It's saying take care of you first, right? So what is Jesus saying? He's saying have integrity. Have integrity. You know that word integrity? It sounds very bold and prestigious. Integrity. Integrity is being aware of the state of your heart and living in accordance with what you say, what you tell others, what you teach others. Are you actually practicing that thing, right? Because it's easier to talk about other people's problems. It's easier to put the microscope outward instead of inward. 
But Jesus says, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly. Right? Integrity is being able to see clearly. Having integrity. The only people that Jesus attacked while he was on earth were the hypocrites. Were those who were so busy judging others that they didn't look inside. And he was always calling out the Pharisees for their hearts. Right? For what was going on inside. Outside your whitewashed tombs, inside you're full of dead man's bones. You know, like those are, those are pretty good insults. Right? I haven't used that one, but it's biblical. So, um, <laughs> but when, in the epistles, when God establishes the church, when God establishes leaders, the number one qualification is integrity. Like, I just want to read God's criteria for eldership in 1 Timothy 3. And we could do a whole series on this. We could pick this apart. That's not what we're going to do today. Although if you want to talk about it, I'm more than willing to talk about it. But this is what it says in 1 Timothy 3. It says, Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And I'm just like sweating over here. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But this should make us sweat a little bit. Um, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Where is God's bar for leaders? Boom! How much does God care about integrity, especially in leadership? Now, I was joking about sweating a little bit, but this does make me sweat. As a leader, it's like what area of my life is not aligned with what God wants in his leadership? You know, um, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, you know, all these things. It's like, man, God is pushing his leaders to exhibit all of these qualities because he cares about integrity, because leaders are the ones who are leading other people, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't want he, he wants his people, it doesn't say anything about talent, charisma, anything like that. It's, it's all about integrity. Because that's the basis of being a good leader, is living a life that's consistent with what you preach. Right? That's the basis. It's living a life of integrity. And if that list is in, intimidating to you, it's intimidating to me too. <laughs> and uh, every time I read it, God shows me you have more work to do. You have more work to do. But again, I'm thankful for his grace in that process. Thankful for his grace in that process. But as you can see, that's how important integrity is to God. Like, if you want to lead in his church, you need to live a life of integrity. So guys, as we talked about integrity being a high bar, this has been a challenging message. And we've covered a lot of ground. So thank you. You're doing great, guys. You're doing amazing. Um, but we wanted to leave a little bit of space at the end for just a response. Um, 
<clears throat> myself, Karma, Marcel, we're going to actually be up here. And if, if you need prayer this morning for anything that God's laid on your heart, this is a great time to respond. Also, we're going to take communion this morning. And instead of doing the group communion, this is going to be a time of personal reflection where you can ask God those questions. Like, God, help me to live a life more of integrity. Or have I been judging people I shouldn't? Or, or Jesus, give me more of your heart. And it's just going to be a time for you to remember grace. Because that's what communion is all about. We're not perfect. We can't be perfect, right? We fail all the time. But what Jesus has given us is tremendous grace through the blood of Christ, right? Forgiveness. We have to come back and land on forgiveness. We have to come back and land on forgiveness because forgiveness changed everything for us, right? You don't get to heaven by anything you did or will do. You get to heaven because you know Jesus, because he saved you. He's your savior. And so if you need time this morning just to, just to remember what Jesus gave so that you could be saved and know him and know that he will never let you go, that you are never pushed aside, do that this morning. And typically we come up and we, we say, okay, take the bread Take the juice. I'm going to allow you to do that at your own pace this morning. If you want to lead your family, lead your family. Um, but we're just going to spread out, and, and uh, Tyler and Rebecca are going to come and sing. But before they do that, let's just pray and, uh, and get, into this, get into this heart. Lord, we, uh, we thank you, Jesus, that you, you poured it all out for us. Jesus, you did something that we could never do, never hope to do. God, you will always be more courageous, um, more holy, um, more righteous, more loving than us. And Lord, we want to be more like you. But Jesus, the cross frees us from being you. We could never be you. We could never do what you did. Lord, because we are imperfect. And so, Lord, we just come before you this morning, and I don't know what's stirred for different people. I don't know what, what needs to happen this morning, but, Lord, I just pray that whether that's responding to this call of love, maybe we've never heard how much you love us, Lord, that, that, that you would lead us to respond to that, to come back home, back to your family. Maybe we've been wandering for a whole long time, and we just need to come home. Maybe the maybe the move for us is moving from having a, having a critical heart to one that's concerned for the world. One that's more concerned for how our brothers and sisters are doing. Lord, would you, would you just give us your heart this morning? Give us more of your heart. Lord, more of your presence. Holy Spirit, come and shape us the way you want us this morning.